Good morning. Yeah? Good morning. For the video, right? That was for the video. Okay. My name is Eric Van Zee. I'm one of the pastors here at Green Tree, and we're so glad that you're here to worship with us. Um, and uh, today is Mission Sunday. If you hadn't noticed, um, that was what the, the video was for, just to, um, we're excited about what God is doing, what God has done in and through um, Green Tree. And uh, there's been a lot that's going on. We're, we are a pretty missional church, and sometimes we don't always know that. Uh, there's lots of pockets of ministry that's going on, and today we'd like to just start to highlight and start to bring some of that to your attention, um, not to give ourselves a pat on the back, but to give God glory and to continue the work that, that he's begun in his kingdom building. And so um, I don't know if you know, but uh, we give 10% of our, our budget to missions of our operating budget, so about $250,000 that we give annually to missions, and um, it is very exciting about what, what God is doing through that. Um, we also just put up a missions kiosk. I don't know if you noticed it when you walked in, but there's a t- an extra TV by the kitchen out here. It's a touchscreen TV, so um, after you get you know all your donuts, then go on over there with your sticky fingers, and um, and you can see you can see what kind of mission partners who we have, who we're supporting, um, where some of that money is going, and uh, it gives you op- it gives you how you can pray for them, maybe how you can continue to give to them, up, you know, above and beyond. Um, and just different ways that we can support them. And so please make use of that. We're pretty excited. We'll continue to update it with new information. So it's not like just one time stop, right? Go back for more. There'll be more information on there. Um, so today we're also going to um, highlight and just we have other, a couple of our ministry partners here with us today. We're super excited about about people that have given their lives and dedicated their lives to to missions. Um, that the, the, the um, Great Commission would be fulfilled, right? And they're, they're doing a part of that. And so I want to invite Robbie Ham up here. And uh, he is uh, working with the, the Philemon Project in Lebanon. And I'm so excited that he can share a little bit about what's going on in Lebanon. Thank you. When you think of the Middle East, what, what comes to your mind? When you scroll on your phone and you see the news, what appears? Indeed, the situation over there is incredibly bleak. But I want to introduce to you and let you see what God is doing in the midst of the brokenness and the pain. Our ministry started by that woman right there. She's a migrant domestic woman. Slavery is alive and well. It has not ended. It goes under different names, different terms. Her Lebanese employer raped her. She came to our church saying, I need $650. I need an abortion. We had the choice of a church to either say, God, be blessed, we don't help you, go on your way, or get involved. Be uncomfortably pushed to an edge where Jesus loves to push his disciples. And we journeyed with her and walked with her. And as we did, she tasted that the Lord was good because she met a community of grace-based, love-laced people. And she said, I want to know your Jesus. She had the baby. Six months later, we went to find a place to put the baby. You see that little room there? Those children are tied to chairs. You see that little boy, three years old. When you talk to your three-year-old or a three-year-old grandson or a granddaughter, what do they tell you? About the colors they were playing with, a toy, a book? That little boy said, I hope Mama Vicky, who runs that little place there, dies. 
cognitive experts say that between zero and four is the most formative years of a child's brain. And what they find is that toxic stress between those most formidable years produces long-term psychological or health issues in an adult. What actually happens is toxic stress rewires the brain architecture. We had a choice. Either we're going to do something about it, or we're just going to say, go on your way. We'll pray for you. We started GROW. When you walk into our center, this is what you're going to find. An early childhood development center and adult mentoring program. But this is no ordinary center. It is women-led, women-run. Our staff is phenomenal. And flipping things upside down in a male-dominated Islamic world are women who are challenging the status quo. There's my staff there. My director, who's standing back there, the fourth from the left, said, tell your churches, I wish you could sit in my chair. Because the next slide, I want to tell you a story about one woman, that woman to the right right there. She came into our center desperate to put her child. She lost her mother and father in Syria. An RPG went right through their apartment and killed them both. She saw that happen. She ran for her life. She doesn't even know where her husband is. She lost contact with her brother and sister. She's all alone in Beirut. And she came to put her daughter into our center. My director said, we're fully booked. We have no space for you. She jumped from her chair and she fell on her feet. And she was sobbing and kissing. She said, please, I have nobody. It took two months, really, to put her in. She told me the story. She said, in that two months, I left my baby by a bridge. And I left, like a Hagar story. And God tugged on her heart and said, pick your baby up. I'm going to take care of it. Take care of her. She put her into our center. Then she asked one of our staff members over time, why do you people do what you do? And all my staff said is, you do it because Jesus does this. And she says, I want to know Jesus. This is the church partner we have. God is doing something in the Middle East, a phenomenal thing. That church started in 2007 with 120 people. Today, it's 1,000. Filled with Muslims, three services on Sunday, three services on, sun, on Saturday. What God is doing is something profound. One story. Why I think investing in early childhood development is important and why you give to Green Tree so that they can invest in ministries like mine and others. Urena there is a conversion story for me because I see the world in such bleak realities in Lebanon. She brought her child into our center and we found out she was living in a small room packed with five different other families and my staff member said, what do you need? She says, I need a job. I need a place to, on my own. And I need my husband to come back from Turkey. Let's go to pastor and pray, my staff member said. She brought Urena. And as she was praying, this is my conversation with Jesus. It's not going to happen. She's not going to get a job. It's not going to happen. She's not going to get an apartment. This is a great prayer. It's not going to happen. Her husband's not coming back from Turkey. He wants to get to Europe. It's not going to happen, Jesus. Lovely prayer. I said to her, God bless, go on your way. Several months passed. She pulls on my jacket as I'm walking by. She says, Pastor, I got a job. 
time passes. Pastor, I got an apartment. Pastor, my husband's coming back. She brought her husband into my office, a Muslim guy. And this is what she did. Bam to him. Knocked him in the chest. And this is what she said. These are the people that loved me when nobody else did. She hit him again. These are the people that took care of me and my baby when nobody else would. She hit him again. She said, these are the people, and they're Christian, and they took care and loved me, and I'm a Christian too, and I will follow Jesus no matter what you say. God is flipping the world upside down. I'm asking if you to invest your mission dollars. They say for every dollar invested in early childhood development is a $13 return. I'm asking you to invest 13 times in the kingdom of God. Give generously to the missions here so that they can give generously to those that God is doing something through. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much. I want to... I want to pray for you and um, as, as you go, thank you so much for what you do. God, we thank you for what you are doing. Uh, we give you the glory for this, but God, we know that um, he needs protection. He needs support. Uh, this ministry that's going on is changing kids' lives, families' lives. We see that, and God, we thank you for that. So we, we, we praise you. We worship you this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Another one of our ministry partners uh, that we get to support, his name is Eric Larson, uh, Dr. Eric Larson. Uh, we started a, a doctor ministry program together. Um, he finished. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and God has taken him places. Um, but no, he has uh, been a friend of mine since college, and uh, he, has, he has ministered to me um, in some really hard times that I've walked through, um, but also just seeing him. Um, God using him across, across the world. Uh, he's, he has a ministry called Next, um, works with MTW, with the PCA, and uh, Mission to the World. And it is, it is neat to watch him care for um, the next generation in so many different countries. And the missionaries having um, really a focus on students and on kids. And uh, his organization also cares for missionaries and their kids. And so it is uh, a great pleasure to, to have him here with us today. So Eric, come on up and let's give him a welcome as well. <clears throat> and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start us off with prayer um, for Eric. Father God, I do thank you for Eric. Thank you just for um, the way that you have cared for him, the way you've drawn him to yourself, but really just given him a vision uh, for the next generation. And uh, God, I pray that you would continue to work in and through him uh, throughout the world. Um, and thank you that um, our friendship and that he is um, here in St. Louis, that um, just the way that you have worked um, in his life uh, to the nations. God, we give you praise. You know me pray. Amen. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, bro. Thanks for having me. Thanks for not holding the friendship with Eric against me. Um, it's kind of funny. We were such goofballs and College, some of us still are, um, but it's just a testimony of the fact that God can use the weak things of the world, right? He can do that. Uh, testimony of his grace. Um, I'm speaking about me, not you, Eric, not you. But anyway, um, great to be with you this morning. Thanks for having me. You didn't really have a choice, but hopefully you'll feel okay about it. Um, I, before we get into God's word together this morning, I want to show a clip to you from a movie called Remember the Titans. How many people have seen Remember the Titans out there? Oh, wow. Okay, lots of folks. Good. Uh, don't worry, no big spoilers in this one for those who haven't, but I do need to set the stage for you. 
Um, Remember the Titans is a movie that uh, is is based on a true story. It takes place in 1971, Northern Virginia, um, height of civil rights movement, the merger of high schools being integrated now with black students and white students and bringing them together. And it kind of zeroes in and tells the story through this football team, the Titans, the Titans football team. And in the scene you're about to see, it's where the football teams are coming together, the black students, the white students, and are going to be formed as one to move into a new identity and to become comrades together. And the coach, uh, Coach Boone, who's played by Denzel Washington, um, is getting ready to see all the students onto the bus, and two of the white players approach him, and it becomes very clear very quickly that their allegiance is to their own agenda, and they try to tell the coach how things are going to go down. And I just want you to see how the scene unfolds. Take a look at this. Good morning, good morning, good morning, coaches. How are you? Good morning to you. How are you? It's good today, Dan. Just wanted to let you know what the offense is doing. An awful skinny playbook, ain't it? Yeah, well, I run six plays, split beers like Novocaine. Just give it time, always works. See you on the bus. Be patient, Bill. Your time will come. Well, Go. Here we go. I'm going to help you boys. I'm Gary Bertier. The only All-American you got on this team. You want any of us to play for you? You reserve half the open positions for Hammond players. Half the offense, half the special teams. We don't need any of your people on defense. We're already set. Uh-huh. Don't need none of my people. Mm-hmm. What you say your name was uh, Jerry? Gary. No, you must have said Jerry, like Lewis, which would make you Dean Martin, right? Ladies and gentlemen, I got an announcement to make. We got Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin going to camp with us here this year. Jerry tells the jokes, Dean sings the songs, and gets the girl. Let's give him a round of applause. Which folks, Gary? Parents, are they here? Where are they? That's my mother. That's your mama? Mm-hmm. Very nice, I want Take a good look at her. Because once you get on that bus, you ain't got no mama no more. You got your brothers on the team, and you got your daddy. Now, you know who your daddy is, don't you? Gary, if you want to play on this football team, you answer me when I ask you, who is your daddy? Who's your daddy, Gary? Who's your daddy? You. Uh-huh. And whose team is this? Is this your team? Or is this your daddy's team? Yours. Mm-hmm. Get on the bus. Put your jacket on first. And get on the bus. Uh, Dean? <laughs> Oh, great, great clip. Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy, Jerry? Now get on the bus. I love that. I love that. You got your brothers on your team and you got your daddy. And I use that clip for a reason, obviously. I mean, I think that's the question that God wants us to wrestle with this morning. Who's your daddy? Now, he comes to us not as an intimidating coach, but as a strong and yet loving father who wants to beckon us back to finding our true identity in him to recognize him as our loving Heavenly Father and to find our identity in him. So let me ask you that question this morning. 
Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? When you think about what is, what do I mean by that? What is it at the core of your identity? What is it that really defines you? For some of us, it's who you know. Is it who you know? Is it in your boyfriend or girlfriend? Is it in your spouse? Is it in your children? Is it in your circle of friends or your network? For some of us, it's who you know. For others, it's what you do. Is that what it is for you? Is it your career? Is it your list of accomplishments? Is it your title in front of your name? Or is it your organization that you're a part of? Is it in what you do? And for others, it's not so much who we know or what we do, but it's, it's all about what we like. We're living for the weekend. It's our hobbies. It's our recreational pursuits. It's the music that we follow and the sports that we follow and our sense of style and taste and our collection of things and all that sort of stuff. Even my cultural preferences can be a real source of my identity. Maybe it's who you know. Maybe it's what you do. Maybe it's what you like. But there's another category here this morning. There's a group of folks here in this assembly today who their identity is wrapped up in what they've done. It's stuck in the past. They've blown it. They've made such terrible mistake that they think is unrecoverable and will forever haunt their steps and will forever define who they are. Or perhaps not so much what you've done, but what's been done to you. You've been wounded. You've been hurt. You've been abused. You've been betrayed. And it feels as though that has forever got you trapped in a box and your identity is locked up in your past. As we come to God's word this morning, Let's ask him to speak to us by his spirit through his word and to beckon us back to find our home and our identity in him. Let's, let's do that before we read the scripture together. Lord, would you, would you wake us up? Would you open our hearts? Would you search our hearts as you promised to do? Search our hearts by the power of your spirit. Work with your word. Do your spiritual surgery in our lives today to help us to confront where we have so placed our identity apart from you and to open us up to the new identity you offer us in Jesus and the new community that you have for us, the people of God and all those implications, Father. To your praise and glory and to our good, we pray that you would do this now in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at two places, two moments in Jesus' life, both appearances in and around the temple. The first one happens when he's a child, just 11, 12 years old. And that one is the one we're going to look at first. It's in Luke, Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 50. It's a little bit of a long passage, so hang with me, and I'm going to make pauses and comments as we go. Now his parents, Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, so they, this is common. Everybody has to go do their temple service several times a year. Families would come from miles and miles around, make multiple day journey, get to Jerusalem to do their temple worship. And Jesus was no different growing up in a Jewish household. And so it was their time. And it says, verse 42, when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were now returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. And here's the kicker. His parents didn't know it. Now, I don't think there's any 11, 12-year-old boys in the room right now because they're probably all in youth group right now. But I would say to them, 
that's not the point of the story. Don't wander off, you know. Like, that's not what I'm saying. Jesus did it. I can stay behind when we go on vacation. No, that's not the point. But I think we do make a mistake a lot of times when we read the Gospels. And the mistake we make is we only focus on Jesus' divinity and we forget about his 100% humanity. He was the perfect God-man. He lived the life you and I were meant to live that we fail at. He's showing us how to be truly human the way we were meant to be. So, And this is one of the only few ones of his childhood that's recorded for us. It's there for a reason. There is something we are supposed to learn about this, and we know Jesus never sinned. So that's not the point of this passage, but it is fascinating. Here the family is heading back, and Jesus stays behind. Of course, it's easy to understand that happening because they would have done this in a caravan with extended family and lots of friends and lots of kids. It would have been really easy to assume that Jesus was over here when he wasn't and, and you just didn't know. And they've gone on this journey and Jesus has stayed behind. And, and, and here's what it says in verse 43, uh, 44. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. Mary and Joseph and the party. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, they didn't find him. So they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. I mean, you can just imagine any parent who's ever lost a kid for five minutes in a mall knows the panic we're talking about here. We're talking about a whole day where he was missing. We're talking about Mary at the end of the day, first day's journey, going up to Joseph saying, hey, so where's Jesus? And Joseph going, I thought he was with you. And then there's all of a sudden panic breaks out and they're asking, nobody's seen him. And so now they turn around, they go a whole journey, day's journey back to try to search for Jesus. Verse 46, after three days now, they finally find him in the temple. In the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. That's mind-boggling. And all who heard him, verse 47, were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, now you got to read this part in like an upset Jewish mama voice which I can't do. I'm not going to try. But you know, when, when his mother said, said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, and here's the point of the story, right? Mom, you're right. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have stayed behind. I'll try to be a better son next time, let you know where I am and come along promptly when it's time to go. No, I'm being facetious, obviously. That's not Jesus' response. What is Jesus' response? He says, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? And it says right there, Mary and Joseph didn't get what he was saying. I'm hoping we will this morning, standing on this side of redemptive history. What is going on here? What is Jesus trying to show? What is Luke the gospel writing, writer trying to communicate. You see, at a very early age, Jesus in his humanity was demonstrating a necessary shift that must happen in each of our hearts. It's the shift of the core of identity from our earthly father and earthly parents to our father in heaven as the core and primary source of our identity and relationship. And a shift from our nuclear family as owing our ultimate allegiance to our ultimate allegiance being to the family of God, the covenant people of God, what today we now call the church. It's not that moms and dads in an earthly sense aren't important, they're critical. It's not that families aren't important, they're critical. 
But they're not ultimate, are they? Even good things, if made ultimate, become idols. There is only one perfect father for you and me, our father in heaven. And our greatest relationship is as members of his body and part of his family, the church. And Jesus desires the same thing. He desires that same thing, that same shift to take place in your life and in mine. Here's a couple of questions to wrestle with as we think about that concept this morning. Where, ask yourself this question. Where do I need God to loosen me, loosen the soil of my life where my roots are planted, the thing that I've sort of placed my identity in? Where do I need God to loosen me in order to transplant me and root me more deeply in him? And a second question, what are we teaching our kids about their identity, their place in relationship with their father in heaven? What are we teaching them about their new community, their connection to a larger body, a greater family, a worldwide family of the body of believers? How are we showing them that? How are we introducing to them? How are we communicating that and modeling that and teaching that? And when I say our kids, not just your own children under your roof or grandchildren who are part of your I'm talking about every single one in here, one in here who's a part of this family of Green Tree has a level of responsibility to the young people in our midst and how we are teaching and guiding and modeling that. This past year, I lost my earthly dad to cancer. It's not even quite been a year yet since he passed away. He contracted it and got it very quickly and came out of the blue and went within two months he was gone. I was with him when we got him into the hospital the first time and figured out something was going wrong and I therefore stayed with him for the entire two months as his roommate and caregiver. And early on, a few weeks into it, as he was declining pretty rapidly, we would have to take emergency trips to the ER and this one night we were at the ER, we still didn't have a an actual diagnosis, still hadn't gotten biopsy results, but it was pretty clear what, that he had cancer of some kind. We just didn't know what exactly we were up against yet. And this was the night where we got the final clear diagnosis. We got admitted to the hospital. The oncologist came in and she said to my dad and to me, you know, Sam, my dad's name, you have pancreatic cancer that has metastasized to your liver. You have days, maybe weeks. Now we can try and do all the stuff, might get you a few more months, my dad said, I know whom I have believed. I know that God is my father. And I know Jesus has me and he's my destiny. And I have no need to try to scratch out, eke out a few more torturous days than I might otherwise have because I'm going to be with him and I'm good with that. The doctor was blown away, left the room and I'm sitting there talking with my dad and I had a moment where I had to tell my dad, I'm not good with that. Yeah. <laughs> I said, Dad, I feel like, like a rock climber on a mountainside, you know, who's climbing in a team, who's climbing in a group. And, you know, you're in single file, and, and your rope is connected to the person ahead of you, and, and the person behind you is connected to you. And that way, if somebody slips or falls, you know, the person ahead catches them. And, you know, there's somebody kind of putting in some anchor points along the way as you make your way up the mountain face. I said, I feel like at this stage in my life, I've got a whole string of people behind me who are depending on me. But at least I still have one guy ahead of me, and that's you, Dad. And I'm not ready to be the last man on the line. And my dad said to me, you're not, but you are. <laughs> 
because Jesus has got you. You see, I continue even almost a year after his death to wrestle with this question of who's my daddy and to be reminded of the fact that ultimately, even though I miss my earthly father, I have a father in heaven who will never let me go and who will never let me down and who is perfect. I love my dad, but he was not perfect, but I have one who is and who's got me. As the time went on and my dad declined, it got to the very last days. We didn't know what the last days were, but, but it, he obviously got to a point where he was completely non-communicative, was just laying in his hospice bed, and he couldn't speak, he couldn't open his eyes, he couldn't move any, any muscle, and yet we continued to read scripture to him, pray over him, sing, and my brother and I were standing on either side of my dad holding his hands, and we just wanted to tell him one more time all the things he meant to us and all the ways we were thankful for him. And after we got through our long list of things, we ended by saying, but dad, the number one thing you gave us, the number one thing we're grateful for is that you always pointed us to God, our father, and you've always pointed us to Jesus. And at that moment, my dad raised his hand and pointed like that. And then it dropped to the bed. And that was his last word to his sons was to point them to Jesus, to point them to their heavenly father. And in less than 24 hours, he met his father and was embraced and is there today. Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? The gospel gives us a new identity and a new community, but it also gives us a third thing, a whole new trajectory for our lives, a whole new purpose, a whole new direction. And we see that in our second passage this morning where Jesus is back at the temple. And this is happening now in Mark chapter 11. And I'm going to pick it up at verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, they meaning the disciples along with Jesus, he, Jesus, was hungry. So they're on their way to the temple again. Verse 13, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he, Jesus, went to it to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. This is another one of those things like, what is Jesus doing here? Was like, was he just hangry, you know, and he just like let curse the tree zap, you know, it's like, well, no, again, Jesus never lost his cool for, you know, you know, anything wrong. He never sinned. He never did anything wrong. So what the heck is going on here? I mean, it's not even the season for figs. So why would he curse this poor thing? Well, obviously his disciples were there. He wanted to paint a visible parable, a picture for them, an illustration that would really sink in and capture their minds and hearts that would kind of shock them. And there's not really an explanation right away, but as we go further into this passage, the explanation will become more and more clear. But I will say this, what is the picture that's right there? Here's a tree, a fruit tree, a fig tree, leafy and green, alive to itself, but failing to offer life to others, is cursed. But let's see what happens. Verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. Whoa, now he's really gone off the deep end. 
Jesus is turning over tables and shoving money changers and salespeople and, and folks out of the way. And he's shouting and he's calling them robbers. What is going on here? And a lot of times I think we look at that and go, well, he's just upset that people were doing commerce and that they were probably cheating people with dishonest scales and maybe pocketing money or char- overcharging things and, and that, he was, that they were doing something they shouldn't be doing. But it's not what they were doing was wrong. You know why? What they were probably doing, most likely, was the buying and selling of sacrificial animals for temple worship. You see, even in their own Torah, in their own law, the Lord had made it clear that it was okay for people who had to journey a long distance to not have to try to tend animals along the way for the sacrifice, which was really hard and costly, but to be able to simply come and then purchase there in Jerusalem the animal they needed for their sacrificial worship. So what they were doing wasn't wrong. Jesus isn't mad at them because they're robbing people financially. It wasn't what they were doing that was wrong. It was where they were doing it that upset Jesus so much. They were doing it in the courts, likely the outer courts of the temple. Now, wait a minute. Why is that such a big deal if this is an okay practice and it's necessary even? Why is Jesus so upset with them doing it there? Well, if you Remember, the outer court of the temple had a special name, didn't it? It was called the court of the Gentiles. You see, Jesus' call on his covenant, I mean, God's call on his covenant people from all time, dating all the way back to Genesis, was not only that they would come and find a new identity with him as their father and a new community as members of his covenant family, but that they would be his agents in reaching out to the nations. What was Abraham told? You will be blessed and that you will be a blessing. That all nations on earth will be blessed through you. And in the very uh, form of the temple, um, the very construction of the temple, that priority was represented and created by making space for the Gentile to come in and to taste and see that the Lord is good. But what had they done? They've done what God's people have done throughout time and continue to do today. They turned inward on themselves. And what was supposed to be the area for outreach and welcome became a place to do family business and take care of our own needs. And it crowded out the very people for whom they were constituted to reach in the first place. That's what angered Jesus. Tim Keller says, get in touch with your anger because the thing that makes you really angry reveals what you deeply, most deeply love. It's, anger is simply love in motion against the threat towards what is most deeply loved. And this becomes very clear, folks, when we look, and I don't have it for you on the screen, but when you look at the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 21, it becomes really clear that that's what indeed Jesus was all about when he cleansed the temple. In verse 14, it says this, after Jesus has cleared the temple, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. What happens after Jesus cleanses the temple and restores it to its original purpose? In come the weak and the young. In come the alien and the orphan. 
In come the Gentile and the child, restored, no longer leafy and green, alive to itself and failing to offer life to others, but now open up and extending life to the nations and the next generation. What's the trajectory of your life? We've talked about a new identity, a new community. What's the trajectory, the new trajectory, the trajectory of your life? If you were to sit down today over lunch after this service with friends and family, and you asked them this question, what do you think they'd say to you? If you said, what is our family all about? Or if you said, what's my life all about? And you really knew that these folks who could be honest with you and were free to be, what do you think they would say? Maybe try it and see what they'd say. What are your goals? What are your real honest goals? Not the stated ones, but the real functional goals of your life. Career advancement, financial security, early retirement, respect and admiration of peers, escape into fun and, 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 and hobbies and, and you know, that kind of thing. What are your goals for your kids? When we really come down to it, the honest ones, is it not so much about character and about their relationship with the Lord, or is it really more about grades and discipline and behavior? Is it really more about getting a scholarship, getting into the right school, marrying the right person, getting the right job, and having a house with a white picket fence, two kids, and a dog? And by the way, live really close so I can see my grandkids a lot. Don't dare go to the other side of the world and sacrifice your life for Christ there. That's for other people to do, not our family. When I was um, a much younger dad, I, I have four daughters, no sons. Please pray for me. <laughs> two are in college, two are in high school. When I was a much younger dad, um, kids were all real little. My youngest was like a year and a half. So they're all like two years apart. Um, the youngest was like a year and a half. I was a pastor at a local church. And it was a busy season of Advent. It was in December. I'd had a lot of responsibilities that morning. I'd been going, 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 going. We got home. In the afternoon, I put the little one down for a nap. My wife, Rebecca, and I and our other three daughters plopped down in front of a fire in the fireplace, put It's a Wonderful Life on TV. Snow was falling outside. I was like, this is time to pass out. I'm in my, you know, sweats and, and uh, slippers, and I'm just like, this is my time. You know, this is like me time. I don't want to move. I don't want to get off this couch. The phone is off. I'm not doing anything. It's comfort. It's about me now. Um, yes, pastors are very selfish. Um, and can be. Um, so, and all of a sudden, in the middle of this moment, you know, things are just starting to relax. I hear this sound. Beep, 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 beep. Sounds like a truck backing up, but it won't stop. And it's super irritating. I'm like, when is that truck going to stop backing up outside? Maybe somebody's moving in. Maybe they need help. Oh, I get up. I'm so frustrated. I go over the door. I'm all like cranky. And I look out the front door. We have a little window in our front door. No truck. It's dead quiet, snow's falling, snow's laying around, nothing. But the noise is even louder now. Beep, beep, beep. It's coming from behind me. I wheel around and I look up the stairs to our second floor and I look up there and it's filled with billowing black smoke. It's the smoke detector. Now, a little change happened in my heart. <laughs> I wasn't like, dang it, now I gotta deal with the fire. You know? No, it's just like, <laughs> whoa! You know, forget the whole comfort thing and all that stuff. I'm heading up there like a bolt of lightning. My one and a half year old is upstairs. I get to the top of the stairs and I look down the hall and she's climbed out of her crib, which we didn't know she could do. 
and she's standing in the doorway of her sister's room, and it's cracked, and she's standing in the doorway of it, and she looks at me, and her eyes get huge, and she goes, uh-oh. <laughs> I was like, what happened? I run down, I grab her up like a football, push up with the door, black smoke pours out, and there in the middle of the room is a pillar of fire from floor to ceiling. The uh, space heater was left on and got knocked over. The fail-safe didn't go off. It just kept cooking until it ignited. And it was now a molten blob like a, like a Roman candle. It was crazy. So I run down the stairs. I grab all the girls and get them coats and throw them outside into the snow. I didn't really throw them, but, you know, get them outside. I turn back around, run up to deal with the fire, go into the room, grab this, like, tubby, like, thing for toys, dump the toys out. And I grab, like, some flannel things or whatever, like oven mitts. And I grab the thing, rip it off the, while it's flaming, you know put it in the bin, run it down, dump it in the snow. That's what I thought to call the fire department. By the, way. <laughs> like, they were like, well, you know, Mr. Larson, our biggest advice for you is next time call us first. Like, good to get your family out, but don't try to, you know, solve fires without the fire department. That was really stupid. But the point is this. A lot of us are living our lives trying to cling to our own comfort and our own agenda when there's something much more urgent going on that God calls us to, that's of such greater importance. That's so much bigger than our little lives and our own comfort. We tend to make Christianity and the church about our own comfort too. We tend to make church that way too. Instead of recognizing that we're called to Christ's kingdom passion and purpose. Here's another question to ponder. How are you, how are we helping our kids live their lives for Christ on his kingdom mission. What do your prayers sound like when you pray with and for your children and the children in your orbit and in this church family? What, what kind of service are you modeling and inviting young people in your circle? And I'm saying this is for everybody here. This is not just parents with kids at home. This is not just grandparents who have grandkids they're in orbit around. This is for every adult in the life of the congregation. We all have a responsibility for this family because we're part of it now. If you trust in the name of Christ, you not only have a new identity, you have a new community. It's the family of God. And you're responsible for the young people in this community too. What does our giving reflect? Are we willing to send our young people, the ones in our own household and the ones in our church, when we'd much rather keep them to ourselves and have them here? What kind of modeling is going on? What kind of apprenticeship and inviting to do ministry together with all different ages in the life of the church? What do your conversations sound like? Your conversations after church around a table with friends or with family. Is God the hero of the stories you tell? Is it all about him or is Jesus just kind of an add-on, a tack-on? Jesus will help us accomplish our goals. Jesus will help our lives be comfortable as we do what we want to do? Or is he the organizing theme? Is he the center of gravity of your life and your family? We have a savior, friends, a savior Jesus who laid aside his own rights and privileges to identify with us, his people, and to do his father's will, even going to the cross on your behalf and mine so that we might become adopted sons and daughters of God. Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? Turn to God today for a new identity, a new community, and a new trajectory for your life. We've got our daddy, and we've got our brothers and sisters on the team. So let's get on the bus 
And let's move out in victory as his agents of grace in reaching the nations and the next generation with the love of Christ. Let's ask him to do that right now. Jesus, would you, would you so captivate our hearts, remind us of who we are in Christ, draw us back to the fundamental reality and the first love of our lives as your adopted sons and daughters in Jesus, as a new family, the body of Christ together. Would you animate us and enable us to live for your passion, for your purpose, in line with your kingdom trajectory, to be your hands and feet in reaching the nations and the next generation with the gospel. We pray that you do that in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song as we ask through this song that the Lord would build our lives around him and his kingdom trajectory. Mm -hmm.